Well, that's, uh, that's absolutely wonderful. So with that in mind, let's take our windows, <laughs> open them up to Genesis. Take your Bible, turn to Genesis if you would join me. This morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 28. That's our text for today. So we've been continuing in this series through Genesis. I know um, you're thinking, well, we haven't got very far. Uh, There will be some sections, I assure you, that we will take larger sections. But uh, uh, for now, um, we're just grabbing it in the chunks that seem to make sense. So um, there's no real time limit on how long this should take. So uh, buckle in. uh, We're uh, taken in the Word of God. All right, Genesis chapter 9, 18 through 28 in the Church Bible. You're going to find that in page 6, no, sorry, 7, page 7. begins in page 7. All right, let's uh, give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Would you follow along? The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All of the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is God's word, and I trust that uh, along with me, you are thankful for it. Uh, I need to to pray, and uh, you do too, that God would uh, open his word to our minds and our hearts. And so would you join me as we prepare? Father, we ask that you would speak. Your servants are listening. We know we need to hear from you, Lord. We need more than the voice of a mere man. We need you by your spirit to speak to our minds and hearts. And we know that when we attentively wait for you to speak, when we attentively expect you to speak. Indeed, we are edified, we are grown, we are spiritually nourished. So, and we pray that that would happen. Give us all ears to hear and hearts to respond uh, with joy and expectant, um, expecting to be changed. Lord, I ask for my own uh, strengthening now that you would uh, overcome the the heaviness that's on my heart, and that you would cause uh, me to speak with clarity and confidence for the sake of bringing uh, Christ to the fore to exalt his name. Help us all now, we pray 
In Christ's name, amen. Well, I wonder, have you ever thought about the things that people reflexively say to kind of establish the end of a conversation, maybe in a business transaction? You know, if at the end of bagging your groceries, uh, the clerk might say to you, thank you for your business. Uh, But often I hear people saying, have a good one. Maybe that's something you say. But a good what? I think it means have a good day. But I think it could really mean almost anything. Have a good drive to your next destination or have a good conversation with your wife in the car or even have a good life. What this is, in essence, is a a blessing. It's a kind of fill-in-the-blank, whatever you like to have kind of blessing. It's so much more pleasant than, say, the angry expressions that are decidedly not blessings. For example, that, that you might have experienced from a from other drivers on the road when perhaps you're going too slowly or when you mistakenly change lanes into the path of another driver. Those words, often including some sentiment about your eternal destiny, uh, those, those are not blessings. Often they use sign language, not ASL. Um, <laughs> we get it, right? Blessings are good words, good pronouncements, curses. They're the opposite. As we look at our Bible passage this morning, we we have both contained in this a blessing and a curse from from the mouth of Noah. Now, since we've been introduced to Noah at the beginning or in chapter 5, late in chapter 5, this section here contains the first and last words, really the only words of Noah's that are ever recorded. Preceding his words, which amount to a blessing and a curse, a curse and a blessing in that order, We have a narrative describing a situation that gives occasion to the curse and the blessing. Now, in my study of of Genesis, and we've talked about this before in weeks past, it's become clear to me that that some sections are challenging to understand. And this is one such passage, and you probably have already discovered that as we've read it together. And in this section, it's primarily because of what is not said. But I want to say this, more important than pinning down what happened in this is understanding the outcome. So I'm going to say this. The best way to understand this passage and others really in the Pentateuch uh, is from the perspective of the Israelites. So the Israelites who had been rescued from Egypt, they're, they're now uh, uh, completed their wilderness wanderings. They're about to cross the Jordan River, and as Josh just shared, um, encouraging the Israelites to to not let the book of the law, you know, leave their minds and pass from them. So they're about to cross into the land of Canaan to possess it. And so with the promised land in view, they're now hearing about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah. And what that's meant to do is to be instructive, instructive for what is immediately before them, the land of Canaan. You see, the Israelites had already been in this place 40 years earlier. At that time, they refused to cross over. Their fear of the Canaanites was was greater than their own confidence in the Lord. The same Lord, the one and only, who said, I will be your God. The Lord who had miraculously delivered them from, from slavery in Egypt. Well, that generation has all died off, and here they are. They have the story presented before them of their own history, how they came to be a people, 
how God had given them a land, how as a people they had squandered the good gifts that God had given to them, and how God in his mercy promised to restore what was lost. That's the context for hearing about all of what it preceded this, and in particular now this morning as we speak of, uh, talk about Noah and his sons. So as we take a look at this passage, I want to uh, gather some thoughts and, and make application under three headings that I see uh, really falling out of this particular text of Scripture. Uh, the first heading is the weakness of man. The weakness of man. Second is the seed of the serpent. And finally, that God is for his people. The weakness of man, the seed of the serpent, and that God is for his people. Now let's get to it. The weakness of man is where we begin. So think about this. What kind of posture, kind of attitude, do you typically take in a job interview? Think about, guys, think about what you, how you comported yourself on your first date with your now wife. How did you project yourself? Does and you think about it, does any girl want to marry a wimp? And it would be a strange thing, of course, in a job interview if you were to walk into that projecting doubt and uncertainty. I don't know if I can do this. It's way over my head. Well, that's not typically what we do. And I think we understand that we want to put our best foot forward. We, we care about good first impressions. We want to present ourselves as strong, right? It's not a bad thing. But when it comes to our posture before the Lord, sees all. He knows all. Because we're in comparison to God, we have to understand the fact that we are weak. So the setting for our text here is post-flood. Mankind effectively gets a do-over, right? The creation has been cleansed by a flood. Noah and his sons are, have exited the ark and they're now giving themselves to multiplying and filling the earth and, and taming the land. And verse 18 tells us, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark, and they're named Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we're told here, telling us that something is coming, that Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and for these all the, uh, sorry, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So Shem ultimately ends up being uh, the, the peoples from whom the Israelites are descended, Ham, the Canaanites, Egyptians, Japheth, the rest. Uh, some say the Greeks, Mycenaeans, and such. Now, when we were introduced to Noah in chapter 6, we were told there that he walked with God. We were told there that he was a righteous man, that he was blameless in his generation. But what should Noah have understood about himself? And then considering the Israelites who are hearing the story, what should the Israelites have understood about Noah and indeed about themselves? And as we think to make application today, what should we take to heart? Well, we're told here, verse 20, that Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Well, that's good. He planted the vineyard. He, he tilled the ground and he, he applied the the ability of, of vine-keeping and um, orchard-keeping. Then, verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. 
not good. Clearly not good. Well, immediately we're finding out that Noah's weak. He displays a disastrous lack of self-control. Now, at this setting, clearly some time has passed since leaving the ark. And we don't know how much time, but certainly enough time for there to be a son born to Ham. Noah has planted a vineyard, and I know that the first time you plant a vineyard, you don't get any grapes. You know, it doesn't happen right away, so that takes time. He's, he's learned to apply the art of winemaking. It's not necessarily that he was the first to ever do it. It's likely that this practice was, in, uh, was applied before the, before the flood. But he develops this skill. This was how Noah chose to subdue the earth in obedience to God. Now, some commentators have suggested that the regions around Ararat, where, where the ark came to rest, are, are well suited to grape growing. That's probably immaterial, but that's what he decided to do. And the ability to, to make wine, that's certainly a gift from God, a gift from God to, to preserve the nectar of the fruit for, for long periods of time. Now, if we look to the scripture, we, we find out later that priests were forbidden from drinking wine when engaged in the service of the tabernacle, but wine was not bad. Wine was part of the required tabernacle sacrifices to be regularly offered by worshipers. And if you look through and just do a search on the word wine, you'll see how many hens of wine, half a hen, a third of a hen, a quarter of a hen, depending on what sacrifice was involved. But what the problem is here is the excess that was clearly sinful. And what happened is that Noah took a good gift from God and abused it. It was evidence of a rebellious heart. Really, maybe rebellion, but flowing out of moral weakness. The thing back to Adam, the forbidden fruit. He was told that could be enjoyed with the eyes. He could look at it. He could delight in its beauty. But he was told it was not for the stomach. It was not to be consumed. And the wine, likewise, was, was meant to be enjoyed by Noah in moderation, not excess. Well, Proverbs makes it clear, and what all have certainly observed, and perhaps some here have even experienced, that wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it, it's not wise. We see that been to a wedding when there's just been abuse or any sort of party it's just it's embarrassing the things i, I when i was a, one of my first part-time jobs as a kid i worked in a catering company and i saw so so much stupidity unfold before my eyes being 16 years old watching these people drink themselves to oblivion wives and husbands left arguing and upset for what men or women did with other people because of being inflamed with drink. The Apostle Paul says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, dissipation. It leads to excess. But the alternative, be filled with the Spirit. Well, we understand these prohibitions against excessive drinking. Noah's weakness was instructive to the Israelites. But it's... it's context provides a greater significance. You see, it's not just about the wine. In fact, it's not even primarily about the wine at all. I wonder if Noah himself saw any similarities to the circumstances of his forefather, Adam. We can. Think with me. Adam was put in a garden 
to take care of it. Adam was, was presented with this beautiful, lush Eden, the garden in Eden. He was given it as a gift by God. Enjoy. Enjoy me as you enjoy what I'm giving you, the Lord said. New creation, or the renewed creation after Noah. Noah planted a vineyard. Adam was told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah likewise was told, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. Adam took that forbidden fruit and became aware he was naked. Noah made wine from the fruit, got drunk, and made himself naked. Noah felt ashamed and hid himself. Noah shamed himself by becoming naked. Yeah, it's different, but it's remarkably different. Similar, isn't it? Untainted by prior sin, Adam was weak. Knowing sin, knowing sin, how much more weak was Noah? And thinking about ourselves, we are far more like Noah than we'd like to admit. And maybe it's not wine. Maybe it's a susceptibility to indulge the flesh in other ways. You know the temptations of your mind and heart, ungodly cravings, excessive eating, greed and coveting. Now you know your own particular susceptibilities. Maybe you're a person who is reasoned and logical. And this is one that, that I think afflicts Christians all the time. You're trying to do what is right and good. You're logical and practical. And maybe you're facing some circumstance that is challenging. For example, when, when Moses went up to the mountain for a long period of time, 40 days and 40 nights, but the Israelites started to get restless. He was to, to receive the law from the Lord. The Israelites got restless, and, and what does Aaron do? He forms a calf out of metal. He presents it to the Israelites and says, Behold, your God who brought you out of Egypt. It looked practical, didn't it? These people need something got to calm them down. They're worrying. That was a pragmatic solution. How often as Christians do we choose the pragmatic solution? The psalmist acknowledges the difference between human wisdom and, and trust in the Lord. And when we, when we rest in human wisdom, it's, a, it's an evidence of, of weakness. The psalmist in 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and horses. Now, if you're going to war going to count your weaponry. Okay, I got enough chariots, I got enough horses. But he says, some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Pragmatism says, trust in chariots and horses. Obedience says, trust in the name of the Lord our God. When faced with our own weaknesses, instead of looking to the Lord, maybe we look to the world. It's our weakness. We know we're weak, and we're looking for a solution. Kathy shared this with me. It's a quote from Alistair Begg, but we, we talked about it a lot, and we kind of pondered about how it applies to so many different circumstances. Listen to this. Maybe you saw this. Pragmatism is the enemy of obedience. When we base our decision-making on what looks more sensible or beneficial or understandable, then, when it comes to it, we're going to worship our culture's idols instead of obeying God. That's happened so much, even, even to the church. 
as they wrestle, broadly speaking, our own brothers and sisters in other churches, they wrestle with the opposition of the culture. What do we do? Well, it would be practical if we just affirm what they're affirming. Well, we're worshiping our culture's idols instead of obeying God. Well, what's the remedy to human weakness? Is it self-determination or, or willpower? Is it figuring out what choice will have the best outcome, pragmatism? Noah proved himself to be weak. The Israelites needed to understand that. They, they needed to understand that they were weak like Noah. And we need to understand that on our own, we are weak. The remedy? Simply trust the Lord. Apostle Paul in Ephesians says this, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And that's a, that's a wonderful passage where he describes the armor of God. But he says this, But put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you know that you are weak? And if you know that, where do you turn? Do you turn to the Lord? Noah displayed the weakness of man. Well, secondly... We have the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent. Now, we all know this expression like father like son. Uh, I think we can all admit to ways that we're like our parents, even, even in those less desirable character traits. And if you want to have a marriage conflict, all you have to do is point out in your spouse how they are like, just like your mom, just like your dad. It leads to conflict because we know it's true to some degree. It's not a fair fight. I don't recommend you ever do that. But I'm just saying, we get it. We, we carry on this stuff from our parents. Ham was like his father, but not Noah. He was like his spiritual father. In Ham was the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent showed up. Well, the serpent showed up in the garden, tempting Adam and Eve. The seed of the serpent showed up when, when Cain, unwilling to rule over sin that was crouching at the door, murdered his brother. The seed of the serpent is present here in Ham. Now look at the text, verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, what's going on here? On the surface, it would seem that Ham is simply reporting what he had seen to his brothers. But we know there must be more because of Noah's response. There's got to be more than just simply a report. Now, here's where there is much discussion on what is meant by saw the nakedness of his father. So, let me just take a little excursus into some of the ways that scholars have interpreted this, and maybe you've seen some of these things. Some scholars take it that saw the nakedness of his father is a euphemism, kind of a gentle way to describe something that is sexual and inappropriate. Uncovered nakedness is the term in the law. If you've read through the, particularly the book of Leviticus, it's that term in the law that refers to unlawful and incestuous uh, relations. For example, 
Leviticus 20, 11. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So that, that expression, uncovered his father's nakedness, uncovered his or her nakedness, it's an expression of, of inappropriate uh, intimate relations. Now, of course, if we fast forward to the time of the conquest, the Israelites are about to dispossess the Canaanites of the land. And the culture and the religion of the Canaanites was polytheistic, many different gods. And if you look at the history of that culture, it involved uh, immoral sexual practices engaging with both male and female cult prostitutes. So I suppose it could be inferred, and this is where some scholars go, it could be inferred that Ham's sin was prefiguring the cultural practices of the Canaanites. That's speculative, and it's probably a little bit of a stretch. I, I said that because I understand that it's a thought, because we're, we're wondering, what is going on? What is the big deal? But if we just come back to the text, if we simply consider Ham's response to what he saw compared to his brother's, it's in this contrast that it's very revealing. We can ask the question, why did Ham simply not cover his father and protect his dignity? Instead, what it seems to be here is not necessarily anything that, came, or that Ham did to his father. It's that he went back to his brothers and effectively reveled in his father's shame. And in that, it reveals that, that Ham has this seed of the serpent, the serpent, the serpent who we're introduced to in the Garden of Eden. He's the one who has tempted Adam and Eve to take of the fruit. And we learn there, in that, in Genesis 3.15, we learn there that the curse against the serpent means that he will be unrelenting in contending with the seed of the woman. I will, be, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Generation after generation, the seed of the woman will contend with the serpent, Satan. Satan, the one about whom Jesus said in 844 of John, John 844, that he is a liar and a father of lies. The one in Revelation 12.10 that is described there as the accuser of the brothers. The accuser of the brothers. The serpent hates that God has set apart a people. And he hates you if you belong to the Lord. Just this last Wednesday when we were talking about the section Sermon Power, we do this uh, almost weekly. We get together as a pastoral staff team and we talk about the sermon text and I get some help out of the process. But Bobby described this this, this way. I got to tell you this because it was really clever. He described the situation this way with Ham. He said, Ham slithered over to his brothers and said, Daddy's drunk and naked. Almost delighting in it. Makes it ugly, Right? He's not grieving. He's rejoicing. Look at him. Look at the old man. Exposing himself. That attitude. It's that, that same spirit 
that was on display when, when the Satan came into the presence of God. And if you're familiar with the book of Job, telling the Lord effectively that Job's got it too easy. Satan says to the Lord, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. Satan couldn't wait to see and indeed facilitate the downfall of Job. That's, that's the, the seed of the serpent in Ham. Now compare Ham to his brothers. Verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. You see, what they're doing is protecting the dignity of their father, even though he had shamed himself. They're not reveling in it. They don't want him mocked. They want him protected. So what's on display in Shem and Japheth is really no less than an echo, and in fact, a, a prefiguring picture of the promised seed of the woman, ultimately leading to Christ. When Adam and Eve knew that they were naked and ashamed, the Lord the Lord provided skins of animals to cover them. And here, the older brothers take no part in the, the reveling in Noah's shame. No, they cover the shame of their father, walking backwards. Covering our shame. That's what Jesus did at the cross. We are stained with ugliness and dirtiness and repulsiveness of our sin. And Jesus went to the cross. He was shamed. He was reviled. He was cursed. So that we could be forgiven. So that our shame could be taken away. First Peter 2.6, it says this, it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, referring to Christ, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Listen, you're carrying a weight of sin this morning. Look to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Turn to Him in faith, and you will not be put to shame. Now, we're all challenged by this. And I ask this question, are there times when you have reviled, not reviled, reveled in the moral catastrophe of another? Oh, it's probably not someone close to you, but maybe somebody, somebody in the media, somebody in government, somebody who you might consider an enemy, maybe a scandal. They got theirs, you say in your heart. I know I'm guilty of that. That's the seed of the serpent. You see, the evil one loves to get God's people doing his work. We need to repent of that. Now, although the serpent was defeated ultimately at the cross of Christ, the serpent continues to flail until the appointed day of his own destruction. So what do we have to do? We've got to be on guard we have to be on guard, as the Apostle Peter says in his first letter. He says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, 
the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And his prowling involves lies and temptations. And if he trips you up, and he does trip us up sometimes, he delights to shame you. To you, you're worthless. You don't deserve to be in God's family. You're a failure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in a spiritual battle. Apostle Paul, again, in Ephesians 6, says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what do we do? What do we do? The serpent slithers in and speaks into our ears through the voices of the culture, even through our own flesh. What do we do? We have to use the defensive means that God has given us in order to stay strong. We are weak. The serpent will come in. He will tempt. He will revile. And if he wins a small battle, he will shame us. What are the defensive means that God has given in order for us to stay strong? Ephesians 4 tells us, And he, the Lord Jesus, gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want that. I think you do too. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The means of our strength that God has given the apostles and the prophets. That's, that's the book. That's the word of God. The apostles is the New Testament. The prophets, that's the old. We have everything that we need. And we've been given the evangelists to, to proclaim the gospel to us and, and pastor teachers to equip us. So give yourself to the word. Give yourself to the preaching of the word. Love the word. So we can have confidence even when the serpent whispers in our ears. We have confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ, so that when we do stumble, and we do, we know that we have an advocate, and we can no longer be accused. So where is your confidence this morning? Romans 8, wonderful passage. 33, 34. Who shall bring any charge? against God's elect. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He was condemned for you, right? More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Where's your confidence this morning? I trust that it is in Christ. Well, finally, God is for his people. God is for his people. Now, parents, you know that feeling when your child is bullied at school or by some other kid on the street or neighbor. You know that feeling that wells up inside of you? 
pray that you never act on it. But you want to track that kid down and give him what for, right? Now, if wisdom prevails, you'll speak with his parents. That's about all you do. Well, you can't help it, right? You are for your loved ones. You're for your own. You want to defend and protect them. How much more is God for his own? See, if God is your God, if the Lord is your God, you are his child, and he is for you too. He was for the Israelites, and the Lord took sides. This, I believe, is the purpose of the curse and the blessing that we have here in the text. Now, as I said earlier, the best way to understand this is from the perspective of the Israelites who are about to cross over the Jordan and occupy the land that God had promised them. Actually, they're about to occupy, repossess Eden. And the curse that's uttered here through Noah answers the big question on the minds of the Israelites. They're about to cross over. There's those bad Canaanites in the land. They're saying, who are these Canaanites? And what the Israelites needed to know is that those Canaanites were cursed long ago. God already took sides. That moment was decided before the earth was created. That moment was first revealed to Noah, yes. So God is saying here to the Israelites, don't fret about the Canaanites. I'm for you. I have determined to bless you. And out of the text. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He knew. Now, he's presumably Ham's, Ham's brothers had told Noah what happened, what Ham did. He said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. A servant of servant, that is to say the lowest of low, the status, the lowest of low, to both Shem and Japheth. Now, the question would be asked, why is Ham's son Canaan cursed and not Ham? Now, there are reasons offered up by the scholars. We don't need to explore those this morning, but suffice it to say that this was not primarily for Ham and his son. This was a, effectively a prophetic announcement about the future peoples descended from these sons and not necessarily the experience in the present. And, and here's an important hermeneutical key to the Old Testament, an interpretive key. We see the events in the, the Old Testament. The events themselves are not inspired. It is the text about the events that are inspired. Bobby uh, alerted me to this. I, I can't remember who, who came up with that, but it's brilliant. The events themselves, they stand alone as events. They're not inspired. It is the text about the event that is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And they are for, first of all, for the Israelites hearing them, and it's for us. So, this pronouncement on the Canaanites wasn't primarily for Ham and Canaan. It was primarily for the Israelites. So, the, so Noah adds a blessing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So he's, he's cursed Canaan. But then he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So this blessing that falls to Shem and his offspring is indirect. The Lord is the blessing because he 
is the God of Shem. And because Shem trusts in the Lord, or the Israelites who descend from Shem are trusting in the Lord, they indeed are blessed. And part of that blessing is the certainty that Canaan will be a servant. Now, do you see, how would this strike your ears if you're about to cross? And you're reminded, oh, God already set this up. Oh, I see. The Lord has already decided. He's already taken signs. He's told us, Canaan will be a servant of servants. Now, that blessing as well is, is extended in part to Japheth. Verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Some scholars uh, see the Gentile nations being engrafted into the people of God as a result of the revelation of Christ. So, so that would be all of us who are not raised Jewish. We get to be engrafted into the people of God because of Christ. Be that as it may. The Israelites needed to understand that God was for them. That they would surely defeat the Canaanites if they trusted in the Lord. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we likewise must hold on to the truth. And this is the truth. If you are in Christ, if you have looked to Christ in faith, if you have come to understand that He is the Son of God, the Son of God who was sent into the world, born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a life of sinless perfection, that in his life he spoke and did only what God the Father had given him to do. He came to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. In the end, he was falsely accused. He was offered up by the religious leaders of his day to be crucified in a Roman cross. And God the Father regarded that death as a absolutely perfectly acceptable sacrifice in your place if you have trusted in him so that your sins would be borne by Christ at the cross if you have trusted in him. So if you're in Christ this morning, God is for you too. In Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. No one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. Because God is for you. Now the proof that God is for you is that he does not leave us on our own. Perhaps you've experienced great times of challenge and you're driven to your knees. The illness of a loved one or maybe your own diagnosis. In desperation you call out to the Lord and you feel like you're just trusting God and hanging on, but you're trusting him. But then perhaps you've experienced it. There's a time of ease, a time of prosperity, a time of no particular test. And all of a sudden, your susceptibility to temptation 
seems to be multiplied a thousandfold. Remember that God is for you and hold to the promise of the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation, no test has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. And what is that way of escape? It's when we look to Christ. We're studying the book of Hebrews in Sunday school this morning and as Bob shared that, that great hall of faith and went through each of those characters who, who ultimately put their trust in the Lord. All of those culminate in this great expression that, that there's this cloud of witnesses, all of those who are in that great hall of faith. Witnesses. So what do we do? We lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And we are to, called to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? How do we ward off the temptation? What's that way of escape for us? What is the proof that we can cling to that God is for us? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and founder, sorry, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where he intercedes for all who belong to him. That's how we know that God is for us. So brothers and sisters, we have to acknowledge before God, like Noah, like Adam, like everyone before us, we're weak. We have strength in ourselves. We find our strength in the Lord know this and, 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 and be on guard because the, the serpent slithers around. And yes, Christ has defeated him, but he continues to flail and we must, we must be on guard and know that God is for your good, that he loves you with an everlasting covenant love. Cling to that truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would be found faithful, not because we find strength in ourselves, but indeed because we find our strength in you. That being aware of the serpent's schemes, knowing that he has been defeated at the cross, we continue to look to Jesus so that we can indeed lay aside those things, those sins that, that so easily entangle us. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for loving us in spite of our profound weakness, for bringing us to yourself and giving us the promise and certainty of eternal life in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you for all of these things and pray in his name. Amen.